Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, welcome back, adapters. On today's very exciting episode, I have sea level rise expert, Dr. Karen Bolter, where we ground truth sea level rise. Please stick around. It's a great episode. On today's episode, I have Dr. Karen Balter, who is a sea level rise expert in South Florida. So she's become a bit of a sea level rise celebrity. And if, as you listen to the podcast, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. She's done, she's been appeared on Years of Living Dangerously. She's done a TEDx talk and now she's on this podcast. So she is a sea level rise celebrity, at least in my eyes. I, I think there's going to be a time when we look at sea level rise people as like astronauts. Someone's going to make a movie like The Right Stuff, and it's just going to be dedicated toward adaptation experts and sea level rise people. I know I'm dreaming, but that would be good for the field. So Miami's ground zero for this. So I think this will be interesting for a lot of folks. And what is interesting about what Karen is doing in her research is that she's ground truthing sea level rise. And she gets into the nuts and bolts of what it means. We see all these these models and these maps of places flooding. But what does it literally mean on the ground as sea level rise is is happening? So it, I found the whole thing very fascinating. And Miami's going through this slow motion inundation. And people like Karen are providing the baseline information for the cities to start planning around sea level rise. Okay. Some housekeeping, which is your favorite part. <laughs> I'll keep this short. So again, please consider subscribing on iTunes and write a review. You guys who are regular listeners, you need to just buckle down, open up that iTunes and write a review for me. You know you want to. Also, I have a Facebook community group. More people are joining every week. I love it. I have to approve you, but I approve everybody. And so in, in the group, as opposed to the main Facebook page, we have conversations. And just this past week, I was introduced to the concept of cli-fi, so climate change science fiction, and they call it cli-fi, which is a great name. People have been posting about that on, in the community group, some great resources, some great recommendations for books. It's fascinating. And so I, I'm digging into that subject. Also, please consider supporting the podcast. I say this every episode. You can go to my website at americadaps.org, and there is a PayPal option. I've also been hearing from you guys every week. I hear from you, and it's the highlight of my week when I hear from random listeners, especially if people have ideas for guests, and I'm already following up on several of them, which is very exciting. And so I have heard from someone about getting an agricultural guest in whatever form that might mean. And if you're still listening, um, I, I'm, I want to do this podcast. I want to make sure it's the right one. If you are out there and you know people that are doing adaptation and agricultural work on the ground or research, please email me at americaadapts at gmail.com. I mean, I can go in and do my own research and try to find someone, but it's it's always better when I have a recommendation, especially someone who's in the area and knows someone who's doing that sort of work and is familiar with it. And that's just a better entryway for me to kind of talk about the subject. It's an area that I haven't done any work on. And another area is national security, and I'm I'm hard at work on making that happen. Hopefully, in the next few weeks, have a, a potential guest. What we're going to talk about national security adaptation is a huge universe, and I've just scratched the surface. So uh, it's very exciting for me to have these conversations. Okay, and next week for the episode, I have Suzanne Pardo from Canada, and 
I'm potentially merging a, a couple conversations into one big episode. I haven't decided yet, but the second guest is also from Canada. So it's Canada Invades America Daps. Canada's doing some really cool work on adaptation. So stay tuned for that. All right. Again, everyone's just kind of getting that itchy finger. When's he going to shut up and let us listen to Karen Bolter right now? So please stick around. Enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to America Daps, the climate change podcast. On today's very special episode, I have Dr. Karen Bolter, the climate policy and geospatial analyst from the South Florida Regional Planning Council. Hey, Karen, how are you? Hey, Doug. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Um, we actually recently met at a conference down in South Florida. I was lucky enough to, to go down there into the warm weather, so I was very jealous of you. What did you think of that conference? It was very interesting. It was companies versus climate change, so it was uh, very nice to see the business community getting involved in climate issues. Well, I got to meet a ton of people there, and you were one of the people that I met, and I thought I didn't need to recruit potential guests on this podcast. And there's something that you said to me that really, you know, stood out, and you were talking about ground truthing sea level rise. And so that's what I really want to talk about today is sea level rise, and that's your area of expertise. But I, I sort of want to jump in on what you're doing down there and kind of tell some stories on what this issue is all about. I like that that jumped out to you because it's been a huge theme for me as well. I mean, I've tried to weave ground truthing into all of my projects, and I'm excited to talk about it. For listeners, Karen is a bit of a sea level rise celebrity. That's what I like to kind of think of you. You're, and I'm going to have all the these links and such on the the show notes. But you did a TEDx talk, and you've been on some other video, and you were even as part of Years of Living Dangerously, right? Yes, I got to meet Jack Black, and we spent a week filming for the Miami episode um, on Na- National Geographic, and it was incredible. Was Jack Black kind of funny <laughs> in person? He was so funny. I mean, he was just very charismatic, and the way you see him on TV, like he acted like that way in real life. Um, it really was easy to connect with him, and he seems really he seemed really genuinely concerned about climate change you know i've been watching the other episodes on that series and they really put a lot of time and effort to make sure that it translates to the general public all this complicated scientific information so I was, did you see that episode? It was a really good one. You know what? I don't have cable, so I don't get Nat Geo. So I try to get it <laughs> via like the internet. So I haven't seen that one. And so that's, I'm, that's bad. I should be watching every single episode. They did some silly things. Like they had him, you know, the, I introduced uh, my little protege, this activist named Delaney. And she has this saying that we live in a state of denial. And so they kind of jumped on with that throughout the episode. Jack Black, he he kept trying to call Governor Rick Scott, who, um, yeah, and and they would they weren't taking his calls, and he was like, it's it's not about climate change, it's about dynamics of temperature. <laughs> he was being really cute about it, and then there was one scene where he was talking to a psychiatrist because they were talking about you know the the whole psychology of understanding the the hugeness of climate change so to speak. And so he's telling the psychiatrist like about, you know, denial and just how do you look at some issue, an issue that's so huge and kind of as a, you know, one person tackle that. So it got in a lot deeper in that sort of respect. Well, they did recruit a whole suite of celebrities on, on that series. So that's nice. And 
Um, I think I bet I can find at least sort of like a, a teaser trailer for that episode. I'll try to include that on, on the show notes. But so, Karen, what I wanted to do with this, our conversation is, you know, I, I kind of look at it different parts. I really want to talk about the fundamentals of sea level rise, but then pivot into like your area of expertise and what you're doing down in Florida and then kind of end with like, you know, what is South Florida really doing on sea level rise in regards to planning? What are some of the steps that people can take? And so I kind of really want to build to that, but you've been sort of in the thick of all those kind of things. And so I, I thought we'd just do that. Okay. That sounds great. We'll talk about what's going on and then my projects. Okay. I like it. Well, we're going to even get more elemental than that because I think there's a lot of assumptions <laughs> on mm. climate change. And so you'd be, I mean, I'm shocked at the different type of listener to this podcast. I just heard from someone from Shikoto Island, Japan, who listens to this podcast. Aww. Right. That was super cool to hear from them and not a climate change planner or anything, but they're listening. And so, uh, have to keep that in mind. And so I thought maybe you could just sort of talk about the basics of sea level rise. I mean, what is, I mean, I know you could talk for 30 minutes and I don't want you to do that, but just so like, what is this issue of sea level rise? It's a climate change impact, but is it like a, a big threat now or what, what literally is it? I mean, I think people know the seas rise, but it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. I mean, I can do like a sea level rise 101. And of course, you know, the first main thing is, you know, why is it happening? And, and we're measuring it. It is definitely happening. It's happening globally around three millimeters a year. And the reason that the oceans globally are rising, there's two factors. The first one is, people understand that one more, is that land ice is melting. So a lot of melting happening in Greenland, Antarctica. Um, they're predicting some major ice sheet collapse that's going to really dramatically cause not just gradual sea level rise, but this leads to pulses in sea level rise when you get these you know huge ice sheet collapses. But then the other reason that people don't, know so much about is this idea of thermal expansion, which basically means things are, you know, it's a law of physics. When things get hotter, they get bigger. And so we're emitting all of this carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases. They're trapping so much heat in the atmosphere. Uh, what we don't realize is that the majority of that heat is going into the oceans. And so the oceans are warming dramatically. And that's what's causing them to expand. And, you know, it's like a bathtub. You know, there's the oceans of the world are a bathtub. They have a volume and that volume increases as the temperature increases. Now, it doesn't increase uh, linearly across the entire globe because, you know, we have the we, we measure the, the global sea level rise by averaging. You know, it's, it's a lot more complicated, but it's basically looking at tide gauge data um, so we can see over time how much sea level has changed. And then we're over the time of the tide gauges and more recently we, we measure with uh, satellite altimetry. So we're, we're getting better at measuring the global rates. And then locally you go to your local tide gauge and there's, um, really nice. The Army Corps of Engineers has a sea level rise calculator where you can go to your local tide gauge and look at the past, um, changes in sea level and look at the future projections and all of the projections wherever you are. They're increasing and they're looking at, you know, the Army Corps projections going out to 2100. You're getting to several feet. I mean, the, and the NOAA projections are even higher, which the Army Corps does acknowledge that's possible that they could get to upwards of, you know, above six feet, closer to seven feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. And of course, it doesn't stop there. You know, we don't stop at 2100. All these things, they're just going to keep going because 
everything is kind of snowballing. It's a snowballing effect where we're setting off these feedback loops where things just keep contributing. And that's why we have these, these tipping points, kind of like the pulses that I mentioned, or like, you know, you have the more, the more heat, you know, we have, it's hotter and hotter. There's more evaporation. What is that? What's happening to that? That means if there's, you know, water vapor in the air, water vapor is a greenhouse gas, you know, and there's, but there's unknowns in that too. We don't really know about the clouds, you know, sometimes the clouds can reflect heat. So anyways, I'm getting a little too far in the weeds, but the, the, the idea is that there's global sea level rise and that every place has their own unique geological processes and also human induced processes. Like a lot, like in New Orleans, it's a lot of subsidence is occurring. So the land is sinking because they're pumping it, they're taking out water and that withdrawal causes the land to sink. But then the relative sea level, it's rising compared to the land. I think overall, that was a great explanation, but I don't want this to be a series of just complete softball questions. And so I'll give you some feedback. You started off by saying three millimeters. And I know what that is, and you know what that is. But when you're talking, let's say you're talking with someone in the public. First of all, that's the metric system. And they also might think that that might not mean a lot. And Mm. so, I mean, have you found other ways that you sort of, what is three millimeters? What is that sort of like a a thumbtack? I mean, what exactly? But I mean, ways of like sort of like visualizing that for people, because when they hear three millimeters a year, they, I would guess a lot would be like, oh, that doesn't sound like much. It's really not. I mean, three millimeters is 0.12 inches. So it's, it's, it's not much. But then if you, you know, that's, that's what's happening right now. And we have, you know, the curve for the sea level rise projections, it goes up very dramatically. You know, there's, when you look into the future, but, you know, we could have a foot in by, by 2040, by 2050. And then that's when it kind of sh- takes off. So it's happening gradually. I mean, so, to answer your question about the three millimeters, like it's not much right now. So to communicate that to the public, it's one thing to talk about what's going to happen in the future. And those numbers get huge, you know, upwards towards feet in the next few decades, it gets to inches towards the end of the century, it gets to feet. So when you talk about projections, you can use numbers that people can relate to, but when communicating what's in the, so there's a problem there, there's a pitfall. Because when you say things like 2100, people say, oh, well, you know, yeah, Florida is going to be underwater, but I'll be dead by then. I'm fine. And yeah, exactly. It's a little like people get resigned with those types of messages. So I think one and this is why I do the, you know, the ground truth thing is really looking at what's happening today. And that's a huge misconception is that this is a future issue. Like even though there's only three millimeters a year, it's actually happening. Like, for example, in South Florida, we measured one inch in the past year. And the reason we measured that is because of a local impact is that the Gulf Stream was slowing down. And as it slowed down, it was kind of like a traffic jam of water buildup along Miami, Fort Lauderdale. And so we've had the, we've had these dramatic increases in the extreme tides. So when you're, when you're communicating about these risks, it's not like Oh, Florida, you know, it's just going to, we were going to wake up one day. It's going to be underwater. The message is it's going to be happening a few more days every year. And so if you put it into days per year, that's how you can quantify 
these extreme water levels. And, and they're actually very predictable because if you look at the, you know, the lunar cycle, it's really the, it has to do with there's, there's around the world, there are king tides, right? And because the tides follow the gravitation of the moon. So there are certain times a year that the alignment of the sun and the moon and the earth, it just pulls the tides much higher. So uh, here in South Florida, that happens in the fall. And it also coincides with the end of the wet season. So we have that issue of the water having a lot of ample water underneath because we have a very shallow water table. So during the full moon in October and November, we were going out and we were looking at the water levels. So we were seeing in many areas up to two feet of water in the street above the ground. And that was the high tide. It, it wasn't raining. It it wasn't a storm. It was just water was that high because it was the high tide. And I think that's a big wake up call for people to, to realize it's not raining. There's no storm. Why are there two feet? Why is there two feet of water in my street? And if you can say, well, you know, right now this is happening maybe the three days around the full moon. So in, in October, and November, so six days a year, but you can actually look at the future and you can project how, how many days per year that's going to increase. So the days per year concept is a little more understandable, in my opinion, than looking at actual heights because the, the ocean is not at a standard, the ocean is not at a standard height. It's, we have mean sea level. It's an average, but the range between the high and the low tide, especially these extreme tides can be quite dramatic. So if you look at the high tides and figure out things that are already happening today, you can, you know, go there, take a picture, measure it and say, look at this flooding. This only happened six days of the year today, but with the sea level rise projections, this could be happening 40 days a year by 2060, something like that. That was an example. (laughs) So when I worked down in Florida, it's sort of a morbid way of approaching the issue, but I'd go to national meetings and I always felt kind of lucky that with sea level rise, it's almost like the charismatic megafauna of climate change impacts that it water rises, you lose coastline and you can really get your head around that. And so if you're trying to communicate this threat, you know, you can really understand that like some other areas in the central United States, if they're dealing with drought, maybe it's not so apparent or you can sort of build dams and reservoirs, whereas, you know, Florida is not going to seawall its way out of sea level rise. I mean, the, would you say the the threat itself, the unique nature of sea level rise, kind of helps you communicate the issue? I'm sorry, you said charismatic megafauna. Right. It's the, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? What, you know what that is? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. So it, I, this is my wildlife background, and so like things like the panda or the Florida panther, oh. these are charismatic species that sort of like people can rally around and so like the cockroach or a particular rat people just don't care about these things but like the panda and so for me sea level rise was always that sort of like high profile high attention climate change impact so i guess if you didn't know what charismatic megafauna that was just complete (laughs) nonsense so no but now that you say it i I like it i like it a lot and i feel like yes the Coastal hazards and tidal flooding is something that it's hard to argue with. It's also a lot more predictable. So it is maybe similar to a charismatic (laughs) megafauna. That was kind of stretching it there. So, okay, (laughs) you were starting to get into it, but I I want to talk about the actual work that you're doing at the regional council there. And you had mentioned this 
ground truthing project that you're on. And so maybe you give some background on that. Pro- like, why are you doing it? Who's sort of supporting it? And then what some of the actual work has been on that project? Okay. So this project is actually funded by the um, Department of Economic Opportunity, which is a state agency in Tallahassee. And we applied for this grant. It's a technical assistance grant. Uh, we were awarded it and we created the grant to produce a series of infrastructure resilience resources. And what do I mean by infrastructure? We're going to focus on water infrastructure. So there's a lot of different issues with, you know, stormwater treatment, water supply, wastewater treatment, and looking at how resilient those are. And so part, so we, we worked with, we chose six pilot communities to work with in the region. So our region is three counties. It's Broward, Miami-Dade, and Monroe. Um, within those communities, we cho- within those three counties, we chose six communities. And during the predicted king tides, we went out with rulers. And actually, when the high tide was predicted, we had modeled where the flooding hotspots were going to be using land elevation data. It's called LIDAR. And it's best available. So we, we figured out where the flooding hotspots were. And then we actually went there when the king tide was predicted to see how high the water actually would be. And simply by putting, you know, a meter stick into the, the water and measuring, but also taking pictures and figuring out what it looks like. And so that's the idea of the ground truthing is it's one thing to look at a blob of red or blue on a map. It's another thing to actually go there and figure out what the impacts are. Um, and I really saw that when I was driving around, uh, North Miami. So in North Miami, I had, there's, a, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the places that I went to when I went sampling there in October. There's one area that was, is all wetlands. And so it was this really beautiful park along the bay and it stood out on my map as like this huge hotspot that was going to flood. And then I went there and clearly, you know, there's beautiful mangroves, all these wading birds, and it didn't look like anything was flooded. And I thought that was so interesting because I see it all the time on the maps is when you look at these inundation maps. And by the way, if you are interested in looking at inundation maps, there's a wonderful tool, uh, the NOAA sea level rise viewer. So if you just Google that, you can, you know, raise the sea level up to six feet, go anywhere around the U.S. coast and and raise the sea level and see which areas are going to be flooded. So you see these hot spots and they're they're wetlands and clearly the you know wetlands are at sea level, but they're a buffer for the storm surge and also they can actually build up to keep in pace. It's called accretion where they you know they take debris and all the plant material and they actually can keep up with sea level rise up to a certain extent, maybe up to 4 or 5 millimeters. So at some point they're in trouble. And also they, they call it buffers for migration. So the, if you have areas inland where they can move inland, these mangroves can, can do quite well. So that was, you know, that's kind of a misconception is that these mangroves are in big trouble when in reality, they're a huge asset. And when you're looking at prioritizing resources, you know, you have to think about what you're trying to protect. So another place that I went to measure was a gated community. It was multi-million dollar homes along the intercoastal. And what happens in these neighborhoods is they have the drainage um, system 
it, it goes both ways. So when it rains and the drainage system is functioning, the water goes out into the intercoastal, the stormwater. When sea level is too high, when the tides are too high, the water goes the wrong way and it goes into the roads from salt water goes right into the street. So even if you have a seawall, even if there's no hydrologic connectivity, the water is going the wrong way up, up the drain and into the streets. So what the cities are doing now is they're adding what's called backflow preventers. And they're also nicknamed duck valves because they, they look like the bill of a duck in that they make the water only go one way. So if the tides are really high, they're closed. That's their default setting is to be closed and then the water can't come into the street. But then once there's water in the street, that pressure from the water in the street opens the valve and it can go out into the intercoastal. These homes, you know, these nicer neighborhoods, they're being taken care of and they're putting the the backflow preventers and so they're not getting water in the street. So even though I had predicted there would be flooding, you know, just by comparing the water level to the land elevation, those streets were dry. And they're doing this all over Miami Beach, all over Fort Lauderdale in the more affluent neighborhoods. Okay, but um, you lost so me there. Why why didn't the water come in th- back through the system then in the nicer neighborhood? Well, because they had the backflow preventer. Okay, okay. So okay. the water was the the reason the water goes into the, the lowest part of the neighborhood or most of the most of the areas here that sh- that show as flooding hotspots are either the wetlands, which I mentioned, they're pretty much okay. <laughs> and then and then the streets, but the streets are not connected to the waterways. There's higher land between between the road and the water. There's there's property and it's built up. So the water can't get through to the street even though the street is lower mm-hmm. than the tide, it's because the tide goes, the water goes the wrong way through the drainage system. You at one point mentioned that you were like jumping fences to, to get some of these measurements. Did I hear that right? Well, I mentioned there's a gated community. So I, I had to get, you know, I wanted to see what was going on there. And, and so I was able to, you know, ask someone, well, they were going, coming out and I went in through the gate and and that's how I was able to see, you know, even though the streets were clear for these homes, they had um, in their backyards. I mean, it looked like their yachts were going to float into the into the house, into the yard. So they were even though their streets were dry, they don't have the seawalls are not very high. If anything, some some areas just have this little shallow bulkhead and the water was definitely overtopping the bulkhead. And and the boats really did. They looked like they were going to float in. So there were issues with. The water, homes directly on the water, but there wasn't anything, you know, limited with the, right now with these king tides, there's not much property damage. It's more about, you know, another area that I was measuring was North Bay Village and there was, um, dead grass all along where we had been seeing all the water coming in. And I was on one road that had a pump installed and the pump was working, but it couldn't keep up with the water coming in. And so the street was filled with water, and you could see all along the road just dead grass. Well, it seems like there's a lot of small, interesting stories to kind of go out of this larger project. So I think most of us think of sea level rise, and like you said, we look at those red blobs on the bathtub model maps, and we're like, okay, it's going to flood. But what you're saying is you're going out there, and when you're actually ground-truthing it, there's like a different story at each different location, and that's going to sort of factor in on what's getting flooded. And, I mean, there must be interest in that, I mean, I know you're working for the regional council, but to me, that 
so applicable to any different, you know, the federal government should be interested in sort of like how this is literally playing out on the streets. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think and it's a great opportunity for these extremes to go out and document what's happening. And there are efforts, you know, there's a group out of the a university here, FIU, and they're called Eyes on the Rise. And they have an app where you can do crowdsourcing and actually take pictures of flooding and upload it. So there are some citizen scientist efforts where people are going out. And it's just so great because it gives you an idea of what it's going to look like in the future. You know, we talked about what does three millimeters really mean when you add on to that storm surge and these extreme tides, a few inches doesn't seem like much, but then it builds the foundation that these extreme events add to. And that could make a really big difference. That could move floodwaters much further inland. You shared with me a while back a map related to this project, and you can click on the different data points and you know you, you see a section of this neighborhood and you know there was language like flooding predicted but not observed and so there'd be no photos and so when you had those data points and you actually literally go out to look at these spots i mean you must be thinking do you have i mean you're predicting you're like all right that that's going to be flooded i mean what, what sort of like your mentality is you're going out to these different spots do you have your instincts and are they typically right when you go to locale <laughs> uh I didn't. I I think I have instinct about flooding. <laughs> but to be like, oh, this can... one's going to be flooded, and then you're wrong. I mean, does it ever kind of end up like that? Well, I think the the idea is really that the tools that we have to model the flooding are best available. And right now, we're mainly using like when you make a a map to model sea level rise and coastal flooding, you're basically using three ingredients. You're using the elevation data. You're using the tide gauge data and you're using the future projections. Um, those are very important data sets, but they don't account for local issues that have to do with drainage, right? Whether or not the area has backflow preventers or, for example, one area where I predicted flooding and there was no flooding, I went there and there was a flood control structure. So clearly there was no flooding inland of the flood control structure. The water was very low. Then, but it was on the other side of the flood control structure that, oh, that's when my instinct kicked in because I thought, aha, so if I'm on one side of the flood control structure, maybe there's some buildup and flooding on the other side. And lo and behold, I went to the other side of the road where the, the waterway was going under this road and all along the waterway, I could see that the, the water in this, well, yeah, the water was pretty much above ground level or at ground level. It seems like once, let's say you have a, I don't know if that's just the one project that you're doing, but you, you visit these different sites. Let's say you do this in a, a future project. I guess your point is that, okay, you can make some predictions on there, is there going to be flooding and you're actually going out there and trying to confirm it. And if you're not seeing what you think is predicted flooding, what you just described is that that water is going somewhere, you know, and there's might be another story that's happening there that you need to kind of figure out. Exactly. And that's why it's so much more complicated than just those three ingredients I mentioned, because it has to do with things that are, you know, there's the water management district is constantly uh, moving water around from one place to another. You know, when they when they predict a storm is coming, they let a lot of the water out. So the water system is very managed, not just the surface water, the groundwater and that way that they interact. So it's a very complicated 
procedure. You know, we have procedure system. We have water flowing underground from the west in the Everglades flowing east. So we have our groundwater and with the water management, it's all, it's been a huge issue with seasonal, seasonal issues because during the wet season, we have too much water and the groundwater in many areas is actually higher than the surface of the land. So you have, it's called groundwater pooling where there's just, it hasn't rained and there's water very far inland and it's just water that has, it's groundwater that is actually elevated. There's too much groundwater. It's overflowing to the ground surface. That makes sense. So this is the, so that's the wet season. The wet season is this issue of we have too much water and we're trying to get rid of it to prevent flooding. And then during the dry season, we have the opposite issue because there's not enough water. And so we're trying to prevent saltwater intrusion. A question about like, so these more affluent neighborhoods, they have that system that prevents the water from kind of coming back into it. And is that their community that just goes out of their way or are those local ordinances that now require it? The, the local governments are are the ones that are putting in, they're updating the drainage. And one of the cities that we're working with, it's called North Bay Village. And they've put, they, by the end of this year, I have to check if they've done it, but they, their plans were to put backflow preventers on every single outfall. And there's over 50 of them. So it's expensive, but they're, they're doing it. And Fort Lauderdale has been doing it. They're, the city is doing it in, in most cases. I could just see a scene where like maybe an environmental justice situation plays out where you have an affluent neighborhood that kind of gets that system, but an adjoining not so affluent doesn't have it yet or they're getting that some of that excess water. And so how do you sort of handle those situations when they come up? Yeah, I definitely see that coming. Um, I did actually on the, my trip to North Miami, I, I did go to an area where I had predicted flooding, not too bad, the flooding. But then when I went to this trailer park, they had immense flooding and it was definitely coming the wrong way up through the drain because they weren't connected to the waterway. And it, it was very, um, there was a stench. They're all on septic tanks. I found out later. And that was a huge issue for, for health impacts. So you mentioned kind of the seasonal times when this happens. I mean, do, when is the, the prime time to kind of go out and ground truth the sea level rise information? The best time for this region for South Florida is during the full moon in the fall. Oh, so you just went through it. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I get it is I, I want to come and like help you out and join you one time. I want to go out and see these things. I think it'd be really cool to sort of like you have your map, you have your list of spots, and it's like, all right, let's go check it out. And, you know, it must, it must be a kind of fun. You know, I mean, it's probably very sobering, but it's like, all right, what, what's happening out there? Yeah, it was the first time I went, I actually, it was on the weekend and I had my kids and I took them with me. And it was funny because that was in September. We had predicted there would be flooding. And what happened was there were some climatic factors that caused it to, you know, there was very high pressure, which was pushing the sea level down. And also the winds were in a direction that the water levels were pretty low. And so I was driving around uh, not seeing any type of flooding. And I was so confused about it. I realized later when I looked at all of those other factors, but it was funny because my kids were making fun of me. They were like, mom, you should be happy. The sea level isn't rising. Why, why, <laughs> why are you upset? 
And I was like, because I wanted to take some measurements. <laughs> I, I love so this like, visual. Come on, mom. <laughs> You're taking your kids to do sea level rise work. You're the, the crazy sea level rise mom. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> and on, on that note, I want to pivot to the next part of this discussion about what are people doing about this in South Florida. And speaking of your kids, uh, I wanted to just, I, <laughs> I watched the TEDx video and I absolutely loved this point you were making and you were using your kids and you know what I'm talking about is that she had a photo of her two kids in the water and she, you and correct me, it's like you had them wade out in the water, and this is, I think, at the beach or something, and they had to represent what year of sea level rise flooding there'd be. And so I think that they're relatively young, at least in the photo, you know, like eight or six or something. So if it's three feet of sea level rise, one was at like the year 2070, right? I mean, am I getting that right? Yeah. So this was actually a photo shoot we did with a lot of children, and we did it as part of a we had a sea level rise conference at Florida Atlantic University. So we had a lot of kids come to the, the, to a lake. It was in a lake in West Palm Beach. And there's, there's a group called Climate Central and they have, they also have a sea level rise viewer, but they created this kind of outreach communication tool for these photo shoots with the kids. And they sent us a spreadsheet and all you had to do for the spreadsheet was type in your male or female, your age and the zip code where you live and it would tell you you based on your projected life expectancy how much sea level rise you'll see in your lifetime so we did that for all we calculated it for all of the children and then we actually with a ruler we marked on their bodies where that amount was and had them go into the water <laughs> well what would your kids think of doing that were they like did they learn the lesson from it they understood <laughs> Uh, they, I, I, I don't know. They just seemed, they were like, they were just like rolling their eyes. Like, this is just, our mom's making us do this. You know, I don't make them do a lot. I, I pick my battles. Right, so they right. were like, this is important to mom. You know, I talked them into it. I didn't have to bribe them with anything, but they, they went in the water. They were actually excited. The, the, I don't know if you noticed the picture with my older son, Roy, there was a fish that actually jumped right next to his head oh, okay. as that they were taking sense. the picture. And so it was like, he's like, I got photobombed by a fish, but they were excited because then I was working at FAU and they printed out the pictures full size. And so they're excited because every time they came to my office, they saw them, th their pictures and they actually got onto the weather channel. They did an article about it. So they were on the internet. So they were happy. They got publicity. Well, when I saw that, my mind, just went to that next level and it just occurred to me, you know, you take your kids to the beach and the rhetoric that people who live in South Florida could use is just like, all right, junior, you can't go out past 2070. And so people just understand that means, all right, three feet, the kid can't go swimming past three feet. It's too deep. And like Miami must do this kind of thing. Do you, I mean, like even poles in the water where they could put the year and I mean, you've seen similar things that maybe docks, but I mean, does Miami kind of do that kind of outreach at, on the beaches and such? Well, I have actually seen polls um, in some places. There's a really nice advocacy group in Palm Beach County, and they created the polls in some of the actually lower-income areas, and they call them slap polls. I think it was for sea level adaptation polls. And they did show storm surge heights and sea level rise heights on the poll. And I've seen them in a few other projects along the Gulf. But I do think having one in Miami, that would be really nice visualization to kind of take it beyond a map. You know, it's one thing to look at a map. It's another thing to look at a picture of a child in the water or to look at, you know, go somewhere that you like and see how high the waters could, 
could be in the future. So there's a tool. I mentioned that Noah has some, they have the, Noah has this digital coast with over 58 tools. I think there's 59. And they, and one of the tools is the sea level rise viewer. Another great tool is the flood exposure mapper. And then there's a tool called Canvas and it's Photoshop basically. So you can take any area, you can go out anywhere along the coast, take a picture of the coastline and then you can adapt it through the Photoshop. You can raise the sea level, you match the colors, you can add some living shorelines or a seawall. You can do a lot of different things with this tool to kind of, and that's a good communication tool to kind of look at how the shoreline looks like now and what could happen in the future. And actually, if you go into the sea level rise viewer and you zoom in, there's little cameras and they've actually pre-done the canvas tool to where you click the camera. Like in Fort Lauderdale, there's a park, Birch State Park. So if you click Fort Lauderdale, the little camera icon, you can actually raise the sea level up to six feet and see what it looks like at the park from the ground rather than looking at it, you know, from the bird's eye view. And by the way, this, these tools, the reason I know so much about them is because that's another project that I've been working on. I've been managing a statewide project to train all the local governments in Florida on how to use these free tools. And I'm so excited about it because I see all over the place that cities and counties, they're hiring consultants and they're paying them hundreds of thousands of dollars to do vulnerability assessments. And then I look at the vulnerability assessment and they could have done it using a free online tool. It frustrates me. So I'm excited about that project. Well, I think that was the PDF you shared, right? That there was some. Yes. So Karen, I, I would, you know, we're well into like, what can we do about Sea level rise, and part of that is just communicating and what South Florida doing. But I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time. You, you did this TED Talk, and I think TED Talks are very interesting. And, you know, they're so choreographed, too. You almost have to build in the time for, like, even laughs that they, they try to keep you on track. But some of the things that you talked about, it, and I really like the structure you had to it. You, you basically framed it like sea level rise myths, and then you'd go through and talk about these myths. And I think the overall goal was to debunk these myths. And um, I, I wanted to ask you is that you tried to end with a positive message. And my take from your positive message was we have time to prepare and, you know, the idea of like individuals doing something about it. And then it's, you know, from there, you're talking about the work that you're doing with research. That made sense. You're playing your role. But I sort of... It, it didn't come home really like what can people do? And I'm just curious, like if you want to expand on that. Yes. So I did do some myth busting in my Ted talk and I can review what the myths were. I think that'll be fun. But the, but to answer your, your later question about the hope, I think that it's really important to communicate hope with the sense of urgency, but also the, the idea that there are things that can be done. And for someone the biggest thing I think for any, any individual is to first of all make themselves aware of their situation and then to communicate to others, you know, what's going on and share the message. Uh, of course, voting and talking to your elected officials is important too. And also making choices about where you want to live. I want to mention that for my PhD dissertation, my dissertation was comparing perceived risk to actual risk to sea level rise. So I was measuring what people thought about their risk and asking them where they live so that I could look at what their actual risk is. So if you took my survey, I would say, how many feet do you live above sea level? 
And then I would look at your house and figure out how many feet you actually live above sea level. So I could see where people were either overestimating or underestimating their risk for various impacts of sea level rise, not just elevation. And what I found was that people have no idea what their risk is. They have no idea. Some people thought they lived 100 feet above sea level when they were actually pretty low. Other people thought that they lived below sea level when there's there's not really anywhere in, on Florida's land that's below sea level. We can't do what um, New Orleans does. And my point is that in terms of these actions, knowing just knowing what your risk is and sharing the message is really important. Going out during these king tides and documenting is important. And there's, and it's also protection because really this, you know, I want to bring up one more thing. Oh, this, this ties back to uh, my whole misconception thing, the myth busting, because a lot of people think like, Oh, sea level rise, climate change, we, we can fix it. And the way that we'll fix it, even in the, I noticed that the conference we were at last week, there was about solving climate change. You can't solve it. It's it's locked in. It's in the pipeline. The amount of emissions and carbon that we've put into the atmosphere, there's no turning back. We've we've already even if and I say this in the TED talk, even if we cut off all emissions today, if we stop using electricity, if we stop driving our cars, we are committed to a certain temperature increase and a certain sea level rise. It's in the pipeline. And that's not saying that we shouldn't reduce our emissions. But that's a type of strategy that we call mitigation. So reducing emissions is going to slow down what's already a done deal. But what's already a done deal, we have to start preparing for. And that adaptation, if you are a homeowner, there are things you can do in your home. I mean, you could be dramatic and elevate your home, or you could do something simply like taking your vegetation and changing your landscaping to be salt tolerant. You can take some of your AC uh, units or anything that you have that's vulnerable in low areas around your property and raise it up. So there are things that you can do around your house to prevent, and that's called mitigation. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's called adaptation. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> so, so there's mitigation, which is reducing emissions, which is a global effort because we have our global CO2 concentration that we're trying to reduce or at least slow down how it's increasing. And then we have the local adaptation efforts, which have to do with not building in high-risk areas. Uh, if there's already a structure in the high-risk area, how what can you do to protect it, whether it's some green infrastructure or a seawall or adapting the building, somehow flood-proofing a home? There's those very specific actions you can take. And again, I think that was toward the end of your presentation, and to me that was probably the toughest message for you as a researcher to kind of get across is that the idea of reducing emissions is not going to solve this problem. And as you can imagine how confusing that probably is to your average viewer. And it's just like, I mean, you just said, well, we can't ignore it. We've, you know, there's going to be degrees of impacts, but that nuance is almost instantly lost when you start saying, okay, no matter what we do, we're going to live with some really serious stuff. And on top of that, you we can't even predict how serious. We might say three feet. We might say five feet. And I guess what I'm getting at here is like, it is a tough one to kind of communicate to the public, you know, with all these uncertainties and then tying the mitigation and adaptation together. It is. It's really tough. And that's, I think the messages have to be kind of simplified 
And my advice on how to simplify them is really target your audience and who you're speaking to because you can't just blast someone with all the information. You need to understand where they're coming from and what their concerns are and be specific because there are specific sea level rise impacts that are going to hit home to certain people depending on where they're coming from. And what I mean is, for example, there's health and sea level rise is going to have huge health issues. There's for the storm surge, there's accident and injury for the flooding. There's mold increase and there's vulnerable populations because people with asthma or elderly populations are more susceptible to those types of impacts. There's water quality impacts. We have so many septic tanks that are not filtering properly because they're saturated. The whole drainage field for the septic tank is saturated with water. And then let's not get started about these disease vectors, right? The mosquitoes that are breeding in standing water and the Zika scare, you know, Miami beach was just declared Zika free, but that was had a huge impact on their tourism. So that's health. But now let's, so that's connected. This the Zika is just connecting health to, to economy. And that's another message that you can kind of tailor if you're communicating the risks of sea level rise, because there's a lot of studies that actually calculate for every increment of sea level rise, whether it's for every foot, how much they tabulate, how much property value is at risk, or they can tabulate the population, how many people are at risk. And that brings it to, you know, who's at risk? Is it your, your lower income communities and they don't have the resources. And so then it becomes an environmental justice issue. And you can see how every, every message I mess, I mentioned is kind of flowing into another message because they're all connected. The pictures that with the kids standing in the water, you know, that ties to someone who really cares about the sustainability for future generations. And then there's other people who are just really into the environment and they love to go camping and hike and go to the beach. And so when you talk about the erosion and habitat loss, that's going to hit home for them. So really my advice is if you're going out and sharing, which I hope you do, I hope everyone listening goes and tells, you know, that would make a big difference. If you go and tell five people about sea level rise and what it means to you and what kind of struck you about the impacts and maybe mention impacts that you think would relate to the person you're talking to. That's how you make sure, you know, I think that a lot of the initial communication material on climate change was very cookie cutter. It was graphs and charts and here's the projections. And these are the, you know, what are, what do we do to adapt? We can accommodate, protect, retreat. You know, everything was very cookie cutter. It didn't get specific. And that's another thing I learned in my research is that when you're communicating people Really, when I, I had a question on my survey where I asked people, you know, it was an open-ended question. I said, what are the, what are your concerns? And almost everyone tied their concerns to where they live, whether they said, I live on the beach, I live on the canal, I live on the ridge, I live by the Everglades. Everyone tied what their experience was, what they felt and their perception to their experience and where they live. So when you're communicating these risks, making it really specific and tying it to specific location or community is what I found to be the best method. That's a nice pivot. I was My next question was that you ended the TEDx talk talking about how important it is to protect Florida because you want want to be there in in the future. And 
I'm a native Floridian. I'm actually a second generation Floridian, which is sort of rare, actually, because Florida is, you know, there's so many people from other places in Florida. And I, I worry that that, that the psychology of your average Florida residents works against the ability to sort of address sea level rise and these, all this uncertainty. And so people don't have necessarily a sense of place in Florida, it maybe as much as they do elsewhere. And is that going to sort of hamper making some of these tough decisions and probably getting kind of way out there? But I just, I'm, I've always been fascinated with like the, the, the psychology of Florida. It really is just a basket case state. You know, I love it for so many reasons and I, and I hate it for any number of reasons too. And I just, I worry it's not mentally prepared to kind of deal with what's coming. Right. Well, I've heard Florida referred to many times as a canary in the coal mine and other states are looking to us for see what happens because this is and they also call us ground zero right and we do have a very unique situation in so many ways we have a unique geology we have a unique population very diverse and then we have this uniqueness that you mentioned with that most people haven't lived here that long or issues like that but i do think that Enough is happening in our unique situation. We have a lot of champions out here. We have the Southeast Florida Regional Climate Compact, which has been nationally and internationally acclaimed for the work that they've done regionally. So there's four counties from Palm Beach to Monroe and it's, it's moving. They have, they have created a lot of resources. They've gotten a lot of policy through and there's so many partnerships in this region that it's going to be interesting when these, when the real impacts start happening, who's going to be fixing the problems? Who's going to be addressing it? Is it going to be all pinned on the government? And what happens when the government doesn't have enough resources? You know, the, the businesses are going to have to step up or, or leave Florida. I mean, that's what I, I've heard that I haven't seen concrete evidence, but there's articles and there's mention of of banks leaving Florida, mortgages not being offered in Florida. So I don't know if you heard, I, I thought it was encouraging and yet again, sobering is that the, the white house announced the formation of this. I forgot what exactly they're calling it, but sort of like helping communities translocate. And they, it's like a committee or task force that they just created might not mean much, but just even the, the creation of such a thing that we might have to help communities assist in their sort of leaving, especially coastal areas, that's progress. You know, we're starting to have those kind of serious discussions. Absolutely. And I think that I liked how you say relocation. I think that's they they use the word retreat and that is kind of looked down upon because retreat means you lost, you know, managed relocation. There's it's it's a nice way to say it. And I I don't I didn't hear much about that program. I'm interested to learn more. <laughs> well, you're probably not going to get to know it very well because come January 21st, well, I don't need to go there. <sighs> well, <laughs> we need, we're, I think we need to wrap this up relatively soon. But I mean, any sort of like additional information about what South Florida is doing or where people can kind of go to learn more? I mean, the project that you're doing is just, I think, is the guts of us understanding what this issue is about and how to take those next steps. I'm very encouraged by it. But just like you'd mentioned, South Florida is doing some really cool planning. And oh, yeah, one other thing I want to mention is that maybe I had this conversation with you, but I went to the conference and I was having a chat with someone and maybe it was you that I usually go to places and people don't focus on adaptation enough. And then this person said, oh, my gosh, in 
South Florida. That's all we talk about. It's getting boring. And so I thought that was so refreshing that here's a region of the country that's just, you know, because you, you can't really deal with those bigger emission issues, but it's like, you know, this laser focus on, on adaptation. And so that was really cool. I don't know if that was you, but it was just a cool conversation. I don't think it was me, but I did notice that, that it was kind of fun for a change to be listening about emissions and, and increasing energy efficiency. And is being realistic, Miami Beach is spending $400 million on keeping the water out of the streets. And if they put that money into getting everybody on hybrid cars and solar panels and being carbon neutral, there would still be water in the streets. So it's a question of if you have limited resources, what are you going to do? And down here, it's really there. There's still a lot being done to increase efficiency and reduce emissions, but they're really coupling it with the the adaptation. One thing I love in my county, in Broward County, is that they made it's like a green wave. So if you drive east-west, they they timed the traffic lights so that you never stop. I love it. It's very, <laughs> it's very nice. <laughs> Riding the green wave, east or west. <laughs> but they did that to reduce. They didn't do it to save you time or gas. They did it to reduce emissions. But people enjoy it. Like that's a great low-hanging fruit. I like it. Okay, Karen, one of the kind of relatively new things I'm doing on the podcast at the end is I ask my guests for their input on a future guest, someone you think should come on and that I should talk to and maybe even potentially help me get the guest. But just think big, think, be ambitious. I mean, who should be coming on and talking about these issues? <laughs> Can I tell you the first name that came to my head was Rick Scott? I don't know. <laughs> Rick Scott, okay. <laughs> No, but the, I, I, I think I need to think more. I, I gave you some names when we met. But that doesn't do me any good. You're on the spot. This is the podcast. This is live. This is, you know, millions and millions and millions of people listening to this, maybe. And Tom Rupert. Tom Rupert from Sea Grant. He's, he's in Miami. I know, I know. You call Thomas. I know Thomas. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. All right. He's, he's my recommendation. Okay. That wasn't so hard, was it? <laughs> Again, I've been showing such a Florida bias in this podcast that, um, I, you know, but that's okay. That Thomas would be a good one. And so any final thoughts? Ah, oh, thank you for having me and everyone listening. You know, please spread the message. My final thought is that a lot of the resources out there are these conferences. I keep hearing over and over, we're preaching to the choir and there's so many silos, especially now with the election that the people that really need this information are not getting it because they're not exposed to the information that's out there. So if you, you know, if you know a Trump supporter, send them this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that message. We've got a big Trump supporter contingent listeners, I would hope um, maybe. Well, so Karen, what I just, I want to applaud your work. I, it was great meeting you down there. And, you know, I quickly figured out you're very outspoken. And I just think it's super cool. You're like this hip person from Miami of all places doing sea level rise research. And the most important thing is that you're like going out and you're speaking out on this issue. You're doing TED talks and you're showing up in other videos and your years of living dangerously. You're like, you're like the hip researcher from Miami. That's such a cool thing. You need to sign up like brand what you're doing. You need to even be out there even more. So I, I really appreciate everything that you're doing. Oh, thank you. And by the way, I don't, I, I wanted to mention this that la- last week on Monday, I was at a conference in 
Fort Myers, and I met your mother-in-law. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. She told me she was going, <laughs> and you were on the agenda. I said to go introduce yourself. I forgot to follow up with her. She, she introduced herself, and she was very lovely, and I remembered that you have two boys. So I was like, oh, you have two grandsons, and she was very nice. So I met her. <laughs> oh, I totally forgot <laughs> Small about world. that. Yes. They, they, they're... And they were totally talking about preaching to the choir at that conference, too. I mean, it seemed like everybody in that room were the people – the activists. Well, you know, that that's another like podcast is just coming up with creative stealth ways to go speak in non-traditional settings. You know, maybe there's a monster tuck rally where you get three minutes and you can come and just talk about these things. And even if you're getting booed by half the crowd, it doesn't matter. Information gets out there. And I think that's what people like us need to start thinking about is just non-traditional ways to get the message out. So do you think that I could get on the thank you tour? um maybe that would be good (laughs) how could you kind of you know if if you sold yourself in a different way and then just when you get your two minutes up there just say whatever you want so yeah i like it though it's not so much of a thank you tour is it it's more of like um stomp your opponent tour yeah no i like it though that would be a good audience and uh no, that's good. Creative <laughs> thinking. All right. On that note, we better wrap this up. But thank you so much, Karen. I'm glad we were able to, to arrange this. And I hope we stay in touch. And if you, you get information or whatever, like uh, I hope you just kind of send it my way. And I, I inevitably will be connected to Florida. So <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Doug. Thanks, everyone, for listening. All right, everybody. That's America Daps, the Climate Change Podcast. Okay, everyone, that is a wrap. Thanks for listening in. Thanks to Karen Bolter for coming on. What a fun conversation for me. We we joked around a bit, but it was just fascinating to hear what it really means to do research on sea level rise. We all just see those red maps of like, all right, Miami's underwater and someone's out there actually with a ruler measuring these things. And so it was really cool seeing how this science is going to unfold. Here's something out of left field. I've been to a a few panels in the last few weeks, and it occurs to me that some of these could be more interesting, if I may say it politely. So I am just throwing this out there. If you are arranging panels, conferences or such, my services associated with being a moderator for these panels or moderator of a session I am a subject matter expert on climate change, adaptation, endangered species, legislative initiatives, science communication. I would like to be a moderator on some of these panels. I am not happy with how many of them are. You know, they get these experts that come on. Some of them are not so great science communicators, but that's that's fine. But then if the moderator is not a very good one either, then it lends itself to, I think, to very dull and you miss an opportunity to communicate the great work that this panel is doing. And so if you're out there, I assure you, I would lead, a, I think, a very interesting and informative and, quite frankly, entertaining panel for you. And so I'm just throwing that out as a service if you're, if you're looking for that because – you know, you have an audience that's there that wants to learn, but you, you, it's just some of these conferences, you know, if it's like a physics conference, people go there and it doesn't matter if the speaker's dull, they just want to hear the content. But with these other panels where you have a whole diverse audience, you really need to make an effort to, to, to hold people's attention and bring out really what's interesting and thread it all together and um, explain why these experts are up there. And I think it's a lost art form. So I, I'm throwing that out there. Okay. 
Uh, again, next week we have a couple guests on. I might split it up into two episodes, depending how long they go. But from Speak Up for Blue, Andrew Lewin, and then Suzanne Pardo from Ontario Adaptation Research Center. So I'm very excited to learn all about what Canada is doing on adaptation and then some ocean conservation and climate change work that Andrew is, is doing on his podcast, Speak Up for Blue. Don't forget, you can join the community group. Just search for America Daps on Facebook and a couple of my page and the community group will show up. Email me. Just drop a note saying who you are. Well, you know, maybe why you're interested in the podcast. Again, I love hearing from people who are listening to the podcast. Smaller podcasts like mine succeed on word of mouth. So please consider sharing within your networks, your friends on Facebook and tweet me. I will retweet you pretty much all the time. And on that note, I'll let you get back to what you're doing. And I I just want to thank you all again for listening, especially you regular listeners. I love it that you're, you're enjoying the podcast. And it's been a thrill for me to talk to all these experts in adaptation. Thank you. This is America Daps, the climate change podcast.